Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as we pass the grim milestone of 20 years of the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, even Michael Leonard, the Marine general who set the place up, calls for it to close, says it should not have opened, that it's an affront to U.S. values. And yet, here we are. The number of Muslim men and boys imprisoned at Guantanamo has shrunk from some 800 to 39. That's meaningful. But I read an offhand reference to those men as awaiting justice. And while it's just language, one wonders, what do reporters imagine justice might mean to people charged with no crime, deprived of liberty unlawfully for decades, in a place designed to keep them from accessing justice and to keep anyone else from hearing about them, much less questioning the processes that put them there. We are a long way from understanding the full meaning of Guantanamo, but we can get the remaining detainees out. Our guest says that's something that can happen and should happen now. Pardis Kebriai is senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights and a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She'll join us to talk about how closing Guantanamo is not everything we can do, but it is something we can do, and we should. But first, we'll take a look back at some recent press. Harvard Law professor Gwen Yeer dies at 71 known for civil rights work, public service. That was the headline on the Boston Globe's January 8th obituary for teacher, voting rights advocate, and author Lonnie Guinier. The story cited Harvard Law School Dean John Manning saying that Guinier changed our understanding of democracy, of why and how the voices of the historically underrepresented must be heard and what it takes to have a meaningful right to vote. New York's Daily News had Lonnie Guinier, civil rights attorney, voting rights advocate, dies at 71. In big national media, it was different. The New York Times story was headlined, Lonnie Guinier, legal scholar at the center of controversy, dies at 71. While the Washington Post went with, Lonnie Guinier, law professor and embattled Justice Department nominee, dies at 71. For some elite media, what's most important about an event, a country, or a human being is whatever those media have chosen to center, generally just the relationship to official power that for them is the source of all meaning. In Guinier's case, it's the fact that she was nominated by Bill Clinton to lead the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, but when conservative activists, upset about Supreme Court fights over Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas, campaigned to attack her nomination by transparently distorting her opinions, Clinton dropped her like a hot rock. That's the takeaway from Guinier's life and work. That corporate media center their own perspective doesn't mean that they acknowledge their own role. No. The Times can report that Republican assertions that Guinier championed affirmative action quotas were baseless, and that many of her criticisms around, for example, redistricting have since become mainstream. 
But don't expect them to remind that on the day her nomination was withdrawn, the Times ran an op-ed premised entirely on the false idea that she was in favor of, quote, segregating black voters in black majority districts, close quote. Or that when the paper finally devoted an article to her actual views, rather than to the political firestorm that raged around them, after the nomination had already been killed, there was still not a single quote from any of her writings. Quote, almost everyone is relying on reconstructions by journalists and partisans, injecting further distortions into the process, close quote. That was reporter David Margolik, and he acknowledged in an interview with Fair that that everyone included himself. The Washington Post can talk about how conservative activists seized on articles whose actual content they neglected to cite in order to discredit Guinier without even pretending to explore how some of their own leading lights, like Lally Weymouth, had attacked Guinier's support for affirmative action in the paper while advancing their own support for protection for racial minorities in South Africa. Well, it's okay now to acknowledge that South African apartheid was bad. At least reading corporate media's obituaries of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, that's what you'd be given to understand. As Ari Paul noted for FAIR.org, Establishment Press celebrated Tutu, who died in late December, as not just a key leader against apartheid in his own country, but as a global advocate against oppression, including being a fierce Christian voice against homophobia. Still, the public was instructed not to remember outside of official lines. Many obituaries underplayed or utterly ignored that Tutu, as a South African crusader against apartheid, helped to normalize the idea that Palestinians suffered under a similar apartheid system. The New York Times obituary reduced Tutu's Palestine advocacy to one incident in 2010 when he unsuccessfully urged a touring Cape Town opera company to not perform in the country, while the AP ignored the issue entirely, as did obituaries in USA Today, the BBC, and NPR. Skating over Tutu's outspokenness about Palestinian rights in his official obituaries does a disservice to Tutu's life, as his intense advocacy for Palestinians was a major part of his devotion to social justice. And like all campaigns for social justice, it inspired reactionary pushback from defenders of the status quo. And some worse, like Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein, and Jeffrey Epstein lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who was given time on Fox News to try to remind the world that Desmond Tutu was a rampant anti-Semite and bigot. Underplaying this aspect of Tutu's life understates his impact and reminds us of how scared many corporate media institutions still are of even broaching the issue of Palestinian human rights. Finally, when she was asked on Good Morning America about encouraging headlines that we're talking about this morning, this new study showing just how well vaccines are working to prevent severe illness, the Centers for Disease Control Director Rochelle Walensky responded, quote, 
the overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. And yes, really encouraging news in the context of Omicron. This means not only just to get your primary series, but to get your booster series. And yes, we're really encouraged by these results. Close quote. As the hashtag MyDisabledLifeIsWorthSaving began trending on Twitter, disability activists like A.D. Barkin were asking, are our deaths less tragic? Are our lives less valuable? Are we less human? Well, because they were picked up by right-wingers as proof that COVID concerns were overblown, media outlets like CNN went into fact-check mode to explain that Walensky's comments had been distorted and taken out of context. Crucial seconds were missing from the tape, you see, which would clarify that Walensky was referring specifically to the results of a study that found that a majority of deaths among the vaccinated involved comorbidities, not deaths overall. The subtext seemed to be that it's a very confusing time and just maybe some people might be looking for something to be offended by. Yeah, no. Information may be unclear, may shift with time, but priorities and attitudes remain. And those reflected in the statement that within whatever subgroup, Fatalities affecting primarily those with comorbidities or pre-existing health issues are good news is disturbing. For what it's worth, some of the things the CDC defines as comorbidities, diabetes, high blood pressure, Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, obesity, pregnancy, and asthma. Susan Henderson of the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund didn't misunderstand the context of Walensky's comments. She wrote in an open letter that the message from the CDC was not only abhorrent, it perpetuates widely and wrongly held perceptions that disabled people have a worse quality of life than non-disabled people and our lives are more expendable. When physicians hold these beliefs, Henderson wrote, and they do, she cites a source, the outcomes for disabled people especially during a pandemic such as we are living through, can be fatal. Messages from the head of the CDC must convey that all lives are valuable, and the loss of any life from COVID-19, whether it is the life of a person with a disability, an older adult, or a 32-year-old with no known disabilities, is a tragedy. As Barkin said, we live in the wealthiest country in history. We can afford to give health care to everyone. We can afford enough masks, tests, and medical staff to keep everyone safe. But that requires seeing the full humanity of each of us. News media could aid that effort if they would set aside the frame of back-and-forth political gotchas and assume the value of all human beings and our right to live full lives as not a talking point but a premise. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair.
On January 10th, Associated Press's Today in History feature highlighted January 10th, 2002, when it said, quote, Marines began flying hundreds of al-Qaeda prisoners in Afghanistan to a U.S. base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, close quote. Twenty years on from the opening of that monument to the lawlessness and cruelty and racism of the U.S. after September 11, 2001, and media are still shorthanding Guantanamo detainees as al-Qaeda prisoners. A bigger problem is U.S. news media's erratic attention to the continued operation of a military prison specifically designed to be beyond the reach of U.S. law, holding only Muslim men and boys, most of whom were never charged with anything, much less convicted. Even after the official end of the war on Afghanistan, the sense one gets of Guantanamo from the press is that it's lamentable, yet somehow unchangeable. Outrageous, yet somehow acceptable. Keeping it out of the U.S. public's sight and mind was part of government's plan for Guantanamo. Some people have been resisting that effort, along with defending detainees' rights for many years now, including our guest. Pardis Kebriai is senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights and a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Pardis Kebriai. Thank you so much, Janine. Well, around January 11th, the official 20-year mark, people may have seen headlines that a U.S. government review panel has approved the release of five men from Guantanamo. That sounds like motion, like movement. Many people, I think, may not understand the tremendous, maybe unbridgeable, gulf between approved for release and leaving Guantanamo. I mean, it is a very good thing that those men have been cleared. They should have been cleared or probably could have been cleared years ago. But under the Trump administration for four years, there was just very little movement of any kind on Guantanamo. So things are finally picking up again this year under the Biden administration. But yes, there's a very big distance between being approved for transfer, which means basically that every government agency with a stake in these detentions has looked at its case files on these men, heard from them, and determined that their detention is not necessary. That's significant, obviously, but there have been men who were cleared for release years ago under the Obama administration who are still sitting in Guantanamo. So yeah, the work right now is to transfer those men out for the government to find countries for them to be sent to, either send them home and in some cases they can be sent home, or to find third resettlement countries for them, and then to continue this process, which is underway, of approving for transfer the the men who remain. At this point, 20 years on from 9-11, those processes really shouldn't be necessary. A certain number of detainees at Guantanamo, the majority, who have never been charged and will never be charged, by the government. The government has had 20 years to determine whether it's going to bring charges against them, and it has not. So more than half of the men at at Guantanamo are in that category. Administrative review processes really at this point should not be necessary for the government to decide, determine that continuing detention into year 21, 22, and on is not necessary. But that is the process it's undertaking, and it just needs to continue it and finish it and begin the work of transferring men out now. I mean, it is 
as you've said, and as I've said, 20 years, two decades of detention, and it needs to end. Well, just for clarity, these men have to be transferred to other countries. I mean, it seems to me, (laughs) if you just think about it, people who've been held without charge for decades now have been declared not to be a threat. Why are we still in charge of where they live afterwards? You know, what are these rules that govern where they can go and why can't they come to the U.S.? Well, by law, there's a ban on transferring them to certain countries and certainly to bringing them to the United States for any reason, even for prosecution. So there are legal obstacles that the United States Congress has erected to where they can go. But despite those obstacles, I mean, those have, have existed for a long time and transfers have happened by the dozens before. Today, we're talking about a very small number of people who remain in Guantanamo. It's actually, for as many ways that we can lament the fact that it still exists, I've been reflecting on how remarkable it actually is where we are, which is from a population of nearly 800 in you know the early 2000s, when the early years of the prison, to 39 men today. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's Remarkable, and that's the work of pressure, the work of organizers, journalists, advocates, lawyers, the men themselves, really in surviving this long. And it's not the usual trajectory for prisons to empty, and it has. So today we're talking about very small number of people, and again, nearly half of whom have been approved for transfer by the United States itself. So this is not at this point insurmountable work. It can be done. Third countries need to be found in many cases, or People can just be repatriated. But that that's work that has happened before and can happen again. Today, I think it's just a matter of, as usual, a bit of politics and will and whether and how to make this a real priority for the Biden administration, admittedly, in the middle of a lot of crisis, right? Um, right? I mean, there's context here, and I think everyone understands that. But that can't continue to delay the work of, of finally shutting the prison down. It can be done. And it it needs to happen. You know, 20 years is enough. It's been enough for a long time. Well, is there a real disagreement? Because we see some some finger pointing that Congress is what's holding it up, that if Biden would just act, something could happen. What is behind the inertia or who really does have the power? Does it require a multi-part effort? No, it really doesn't, I think. I mean, this is work that can reside in the Biden administration. It's largely the work of quickly continuing to approve people for transfer if that's the process the administration feels it needs to undertake. Although lawyers have said for a long time that at this point, 20 years on, for the men, the government has never charged and has no intention of charging. It it really needs no further process. It sort of speaks for itself that they remain uncharged and in this category for 20 years. But Anyway, for the government to complete its review process, if that's what it's doing, and to find third countries or repatriate the people that it is clearing. That's work that can happen by the administration, by the State Department. I think the reason it has not is, frankly, a matter of getting their bearings internally and you know, a lot of a lot of crisis, frankly, and chaos that I think the Biden administration inherited. But I think there's wide acknowledgement and understanding that now is the time to finally finish the work of closing the prison and that it can be done. It's just a matter of doing it. And 
there are right now 18 men who are sitting in Guantanamo, have been there for decades, and are approved for transfer. Third countries can be found for those men, need to be found for those men. There are countries the government sent people to by the dozens under the Obama administration. People could be transferred in a couple of transfers. I mean, there were, you know, dozens of people sent to Oman, to Saudi Arabia, to other countries in the past, and the same can be done. It doesn't necessarily have to be a matter of finding individual placements for every single person. That said, I think one lesson of transfers in the past is that real care needs to be taken also with where people are resettled and the conditions in which they land and the support they have. I mean, these are people who've been treated brutally in all the ways that we know and have been documented and need real support in order to recover, I don't know, but just to reintegrate. Um, So care needs to be taken, but it can be done. I mean, the government has transferred dozens of people to countries before, and, and the same can be done now. So it's really just work that can largely reside in the administration, in the Biden administration, and it's just a matter of doing it now. Well, we may, if that action is taken, we'll be hearing at some point about the lesson, about what we learned from Guantanamo, about about what it meant. And I think many listeners, particularly younger listeners, may not have a real sense of the unprecedented nature and just the science fictiony nature of Guantanamo. So if we could just return briefly to that first principle, the fact that it was put not on U.S. soil, not just to kind of keep reporters from being too inclined to investigate it, though the hurdles for journalists have always been high. But there was an idea that if the U.S. was holding foreigners outside of the U.S., that U.S. courts couldn't do anything about it. I mean, when we when we talk about this aura of lawlessness, that was built in and intentional. That's right. You know, it is true that there have been a lot of things about Guantanamo that are particular. The remote nature of it, the really overt way that in the beginning, the Bush administration denied people any even theoretical rights, the really overt kinds of torture that happened and were talked about in terms of methods. So there are certainly things that were very overt and brutal and particular to Guantanamo. And at the same time, I think anyone who has been exposed to or in or touched the criminal legal system in the United States or prison in the United States knows torture is not unique to Guantanamo. Prolonged detention is not unique to Guantanamo. The lack of due process is not unique to Guantanamo. And so I've sort of resisted, and a lot of us doing this work, advocates, lawyers alike, have resisted this notion that Guantanamo is exceptional. Mm -hmm. I think what, what has made it exceptional is the way that all these things that we do in the United States by the thousands and the millions and historically sort of came together in this particular way, in this particular prison, and in this particular time against this group of people. So I like to say it is very particular, but not exceptional. And that doesn't take away at all from the brutality of what people have been through and the harm of it, and that it's wrong and depraved at Guantanamo as it is in prisons in the United States that have really resisted this idea of exceptionalism. And I think that's not a new idea. I think there have been a lot of us 
organizers and advocates, like I was saying, who understand that now and who have the broader context for the way that we treat and punish people we deem to be threats in some form. But we can hold both to say that it isn't exceptional and it's depraved and it needs to end and it matters. It doesn't matter more than the imprisonment of a client I have in the United States who's serving a life without parole sentence in Pennsylvania State Prison. But it matters as well. It's and, it's not, you know, but. And finally, as with the deeper problems with the criminal legal system in this country, it seems to sometimes be missed in reporting that Guantanamo harmed and harms not only the people trapped there, you know, but the system within it operates, the rule of law, you know, if if those things aren't jokes to us, then this is a concern for everyone and not simply a a story about some hundreds of unfortunate men. Absolutely. And I've reflected on this more recently, just sort of the circles of harm, and it harms us in terms of law and democracy and human rights and all and all of that. And I don't mean to right. sort of be dismissive about those things, those matter. But on a human level, there are circles of harm around this prison, as there are around every prison in America. You know, I think about the men that I have met and represent, a man who's still there 20 years on. His name is Sharkawi Al-Hajj. He's 47. He's from Yemen. And we could talk about the particular cruelty of his experience in Guantanamo today, not knowing, still not knowing whether and when he might be released or if he's going to die there. So there's something, like I've said, very particular about the indefinite nature of detention. But it's not just him. It's his family. It's that circle of people. It's his family. It's people like Guantanamo, the staff, the guards who've had to guard the prison and the medical staff who've had to follow orders to force feed hunger striking detainees and advocates who have traveled down to the base for years and had to sit across from people who've suffered torture. There are reverberations of all these things. And so, yes, it's more than just the individual inside. There's a whole world of people on the outside who, who are affected and carry the pain and trauma of Guantanamo, and that's part part of why it's so important to remove these sites from the landscape. We've been speaking with Pardis Kebriai, a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. You can follow their work online at ccr-justice.org. Pardis Kebriai, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.